Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Ontario enters a new level of COVID-19 criteria. The stages are gone. Colors are in. U.S. election today. Will we know the results tomorrow? Are you suffering burnout after working from home? We can help. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The U.S. presidential election is today. Although we may not find out the winner for days, who cares? They're not allowed in Canada anyway. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Hey. Hey. That's not neighborly, is it? You have a word with that boy. Where's he going? Wow, what a fascinating day this is today. I uh, I don't know whether just because it's the game that I'm playing and I'm in talk radio or because in my uh, 58 years on the planet, I have never experienced anything uh, like we are experiencing in the United States as all eyes are focused on America to see what the outcome of this election is. Uh, you know, Reggie Giacchini, who we're going to have on in a second, brought up a very good, uh, interesting point during his report we played on the news that uh, 10% of the balance, uh, ballots are counted after the election a lot of people are saying the you know the ballots won't be in that's that's common uh, obviously a bit more of a delay this time uh, due to the uh, high quantity of mail-in ballots but we'll talk about that with Reggie coming up moments from now feel free to jump into the conversation also going to open up the phone lines and at the end of this segment we'll uh, take some uh, calls and ask you uh, how you would vote if you are an American uh, 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell you can send us a note via the website Scott Thompson at 900chml.com and what else we got facebook and twitter feel free to jump into the fun there ontario numbers are up we've hit a record today with uh 1500 new cases here's the startling uh, part folks hang on hang on to your mask halton in third place with 86 new cases today right behind toronto and peel and out in front of york with 76 cases, Durham with 57, 34 in Hamilton, 31, or sorry, 34 in Hamilton and Ottawa, which is considered a hot spot. Uh, Halton looking at almost three times those numbers. Uh, Niagara sitting at uh, 31. So uh, fascinating and makes you wonder about the Halton politicians that came out and started uh, putting the gears to uh, the provincial government about basing their decisions on evidence and science and uh, and not something else. Mayor Fred spoke up against that and said, you guys, you're playing with fire here. You're going to send mixed messaging. And uh, look what's happened. Uh, Halton in third place with the third highest cases in Ontario uh, today. You have to wonder if perhaps the messaging they heard from their leaders uh, a while ago, perhaps uh, people have dropped their guards even more so. Uh, that being said, uh, we'll carry the news conference live coming up uh, this afternoon. All right, let's go to Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He is in the thick of it. Obviously, American election today. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. What is the feeling? What is the buzz down there today? Look, there's a sense of anxiety no matter what state you're in, no matter what city you're in, and no matter what your political stripe is, because this is an election that is going to have, uh, you know, extreme consequences that could last for days, weeks, months, years, and generations beyond that. We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. There are more people getting sick and dying uh, every single day. We are in an election that has seen uh, more votes cast than, than in any other election before. Uh, so there, there's an enthusiasm out there, but there's also, uh, you know, an air of concern, especially when you, you understand that there's a risk for some kind of potential unrest as the hours go by uh, when that vote starts to come in. So obviously the big question is, and you stated this in your report, that not all of the ballots are counted usually before Election Day anyway. Obviously, I'll let you explain the differences in this election. Uh, but when the big question, obviously, when will we know those results? Uh, how, could, how early could it be? How late could it be? And what happens in the middle when there's that indecision? Yeah, look, it's, it, that's, that's a lot to unpack. And the best that we can say is there is a chance that we could walk away, with, that, that America really could walk away with a president uh, within a couple of hours of the polls opening if early votes and the votes that are released go in one direction. There are several states across the U.S. that count their early ballots and their provisional ballots as they come in 
Florida is one of those states. So if all of a sudden you see massive results coming out and, and it's enough to, you know, give the electoral votes to one candidate or another, we could start to see those numbers pile up quickly. It's a potential way things could roll out. It's likely not going to happen. What we are going to end up dealing with in the United States is the fact that mail-in ballots are going to take longer to count than they normally do because so many more of them were used due to the pandemic. Every state counts their uh, ballots at a different rate. Some count them before. Some don't start counting them until today. That means that in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, it could take a couple of days to get through those ballots, meaning whatever you see tonight the needle could start to move in the opposite direction as those ballots are counted. And that's where you start to get some of those uh, on the edge of the seat candidates and parties as they wait to see what's going on. With uh, those three states that you just talked about being key states, is there any way with, obviously due, as you mentioned, to the large amount of mail-in ballots this time due to the pandemic and such, um, uh, would these three states, because they cannot necessarily have the mail-in ballots uh, in today, that it's it's pretty much certain that we won't get a, uh, a, a, a winner tonight? Or is, again, that depends on how close it is and whether it's a landslide either way. Yeah, it depends. There, look, there's a lot of paths that these candidates are trying to follow to get to that coveted 270 electoral college vote mark. Uh, it, it, look at the early states that do release some of their information. Arizona, it's reliably Republican and has been for a while now, but demographics are shifting, especially in its largest county of Maricopa. Uh, and because of that, you're starting to see more Democrats come out of the woodwork. And what it's doing is potentially shifting that. If Arizona's count all of a sudden goes to Joe Biden, that gives him a lead. If Florida's count comes out and it's enough to give it to Joe Biden, that gives him a lead. If some of those toss-up states that we see start posting results that go towards Joe Biden and it's enough that he's able to pick up the votes, this could be called early. Election watchers are saying, look, it's likely not going to happen. This could be a drawn-out process, but keep your eyes on those big prizes across the Midwest and through the Rust Belt. What about the polling, Reggie? Because, again, we've talked about this at length and how it was different back in 2016 and such. That being said, uh, I'm starting to hear on media outlets uh, now that in, in the last couple of days that that gap seems to be narrowing. What can you tell us about that? Well, so Joe Biden has maintained a national lead uh, in and around 10 points for the last several weeks. It's been consistent and it was more consistent than what we saw in 2016 with Hillary Clinton's vote, which was kind of going back and forth between a double digit lead and a single digit lead. It's in those key battleground states where you're seeing Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden lie within the margin of error. So while everyone focused on the national race, it really is these key battlegrounds that we have to watch for. Donald Trump flipped the Midwest in 2016 but not by a lot. It was less than a percent in Michigan. It was by several thousand votes uh, in Wisconsin. And because of that, uh, people are weary as to see what the polls are going to do. If Joe Biden can maintain that lead and stay inside the margin and take those states, this really could be a difficult path for President Trump because he's really relying on something like Pennsylvania in order to secure that, that path to 270. And without Pennsylvania, if Joe Biden takes uh, the Midwest, it becomes much more difficult. We've certainly seen uh, how cities are preparing for this. It, it almost looks like they're you know, waiting for a hurricane to, to come by boarding up windows and such. Um, and, and, you know, we've certainly heard uh, in the past Donald Trump uh, questioning whether, you know, this would be fixed or not, depending on how if he wins or loses. Uh, what about Donald Trump declaring victory before all of the votes have been counted? It, it, again, are we making too much of this? Well, look, there, there, I said there's a fear, uh, there's, a, there's an air of concern across the United States that if the president does come out and make some kind of premature victory announcement, which he has said this, he said this morning on Fox News, he wasn't going to do it. If he does go ahead and do that, uh, there's a chance that you could see some unrest in the streets. That's why you're seeing buildings board themselves up. That's why you're seeing the fence go up around the White House, uh, because the president's going to be inside potentially making these announcements. Uh, You know, the president has said that he's only going to declare a victory if a victory is given to him. But he's also made comments that kind of so doubt into the results by saying that he'll have a team of lawyers on ready uh, if the results don't really go in his direction. So there's a there's a lot of different outcomes here that we could expect from the president. uh, But because of that, it really has put law enforcement around the country on alert. So, uh, obviously, we've seen uh, shots on the news of, of Biden still out campaigning. What is everybody, what are the two candidates doing today? 
Yeah, Joe Biden making a quick stop in Pennsylvania today to his hometown of Scranton, talking to voters, to making sure that they're getting out uh, to actually cast a ballot. President Trump spent the morning actually on Fox News airing grievances, talking about his rallies, uh, you know, complaining about Fox News coverage about him. Uh, he is uh, just about now leaving the White House. He's going to the Republican National uh, Committee's annex office just across the river in Virginia to try and, uh, you know, pump up the, the, the feelings of people around uh, the office. Then he comes back to the White House. He is expected to hold a watch party in the White House tonight. It was supposed to be 400 people. We've heard it's now going to be 250 people. But it's also coming under fire uh, is irresponsible, given the fact that the White House was a nexus for spread of COVID-19 not more than two months ago. So what are you expecting this time tomorrow? What If I call you up tomorrow at about this time, what do you think we're going to be talking about, Reggie? Well, we still could be talking about who was the winner of last night's election and what results did we actually get. Again, if we see some of those early results come out uh, and they're big enough to offer somebody a blowout, one of the candidates, there's a good chance tomorrow we could be talking about America either with four more years of Donald Trump or America in transition as it moves from Republican to Democrat. I think the other thing that people need to watch for are those down-ballot races. It's not just the president that's on that ticket. There are, you know, a, a good number of senators and every single House member. Uh, uh, Democrats are expected to pick up dozens upon dozens of seats in the House. And there's a chance tonight that Republicans could lose control of the Senate. Uh, and that would kind of give Washington and the U.S. a massive political shift with Democrats then holding on to the entire legislative branch of government. So uh, obviously there's more than one big contest tonight. Uh, what happens in the House and the Senate could greatly determine what direction any of these, uh, either one of these presidents go in. What about results there? Will we, will we have more solid result of results when it comes to the House and the Senate tonight? There, there is a chance that we could get more uh, information about the down-ballot races through the night uh, as those votes come in. There's a chance, though, that they could also be contested. Uh, these are going to be big moments, though, for, for Democrats and for Republicans, especially since, you know, Democrats haven't held control in the Senate uh, for, uh, for a long time. So if they're able to make these jumps and be able to kind of clear out the Republicans that are standing in their way, uh, this is going to show that America is no longer this, uh, you know, red Republican country that it was even just four years ago, uh, that some of these big states like Texas, like Georgia, like North Carolina, the demographics are shifting uh, and you're seeing a more democratic uh, country that, than we once saw. So as these numbers come out tonight, you're going to see how quickly America is turning around. We are all kind of expecting the worst, Reggie. You know, we're seeing the panic. We're seeing the anxiety. We're seeing the windows be boarded up. Could, could it be possible that tomorrow we all wake up, the sun's shining, the birds are chirping, and my goodness, we've got a whole new direction? And this is, it turns out to be exactly. That you might end up in the exact same position that you were in just a couple of days ago in the United States. Look, it's an election. You have one winner and you have one loser and nothing is ever going to change that. Uh, And and you have, you know, when you have a two political party system, one of them is going to win. One of them isn't going to win. At the end of the day, Barack Obama said this in 2016. America will continue being America. There might just be a new leader. There might be the same leader. You have to kind of continue on. America is, you know, a democracy that they're trying out as an experiment. uh, And every four years they put that experiment to the test. So give us, uh, put us into the live of uh, a life of a Washington correspondent. It's uh, twelve thirty or almost twelve thirty here, twelve twenty three. What what is your day? What happens for you for the rest of the day? It's all about watching uh, the, the the polls uh, across the country right now. Look, there are there are already. Uh, concerns over some polls not opening up on time because there was an issue with electronics. It's about watching what happens with the United States Postal Service, uh, hearing that their on-time delivery rates are starting to fall, and that could impact how votes are tabulated and if they're accepted in certain states around the country. Uh, and then, you know, just over six hours from now, just under six hours from now, uh, we're going to start seeing those first polling numbers uh, come out from the early results that uh, that some states were allowed to see. And then, you know, it, the numbers just start to pile up from there. It's, it's kind of a, a calm before the storm as we watch the clock tick down. <laughs> oh, man, I can hear the uh, the passion and excitement in your voice. I can imagine what it must be like to be down there today. Uh, Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Reggie, stay safe. Good luck with all this. Thank you.
It is uh, twelve twenty-five. It's nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. You know, um, uh, fascinating, fascinating times that we live in, and and you know, perhaps we're all expecting the the worst here, and and maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised when uh, something more positive happens, and uh, we, we don't see the anarchy that we're thinking we're going to see. And, and again. Uh, you know, some are considering, well, if one side wins, the anarchy will be greater than the other side. It, I don't know. Things are so polarized here. Uh, it, it doesn't matter who wins. Is, will there be anarchy uh, either way or will people just go, phew, this is over. Let's all go to bed now. You know, we're complaining that Halloween, uh, we couldn't celebrate. We couldn't. Uh, there's no excitement. Well, I think we have that. And perhaps Americans now are uh, uh, looking for a little calm. Uh, as Reggie said, the calm before the storm. Uh, if you uh, if you were an American, how would you vote? Kevin says, hands down, Trump. There you go. Uh, you know, I'm not sure this is a vote about politics. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are um, uh, in the middle that could probably vote either way, as most Canadians do. We get one government and Americans, one government for a, a period, then the other, then the other, and they flop back and forth. So, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, as this all settles down I- I- exactly what happens. But uh, my goodness, uh, what a precarious time in the United States. And I think the whole world is just looking for things to settle down just a little bit. Uh, again, it'll wouldn't it be nice if uh, we we're all worrying about nothing? All right, we'll uh, touch base with Reggie uh, throughout uh, the evening. Of course, coming up uh, tonight, uh, Glo- or, sorry, CHML will cover... Uh, we'll take the global coverage live and you'll be able to, uh, listen to all the results come in, uh, throughout the course of the evening. And, and who knows, it might go for quite a while. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are an American, how would you vote today? Howie's on the line. Howie, what are your thoughts? Which way would you cast your ballot if you're an American? A thousand percent, I would be voting for Joe Biden. That's interesting because I just had someone who emailed me said just the opposite about Donald Trump. Why is that? I don't know how anybody can vote for Donald Trump, Scott. The guy is a liar. He's a racist. He's deceitful. He's he's a complete buffoon. Like, I don't know how on earth anybody can actually be voting for the man. He's divided the United States like no other president has ever done. He cares about himself more than he cares about the country. I agree with you, Howie, that um, I don't think this election is as much about the politics uh, as it is about the moral compass of America and, and the personality uh, of the two candidates. Uh, I, I, I honestly think that that's what it's about. But who knows? I mean, in, in the United States, politics is very much a team sport, uh, so they may uh, look at it differently. Howie, uh, what do you think is going to happen uh, real quick, and then I'll let you go. What do you think is going to happen after this is all over? What are you gonna, what's it going to be like this time tomorrow? Well, that's a worry for a lot of Americans, Democrats and Republicans, because, you know, the the Republicans are out blocking uh, Joe Biden's bus. They're doing all kinds of things, driving around in pickup trucks, intimidating people with guns. And like it's completely uh, it's gone completely chaotic in the states. As far as I'm concerned, I am glad the borders closed. I hope it stays closed. Howie, thanks for the call. Be well. Yes, thank you. And again, if you want to uh, weigh in like Howie did, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Some businesses, large and small, preparing in the United States for the unrest. Uh, it was bizarre watching the news last night and seeing people uh, board up windows as if a hurricane is coming. Uh, but no, it's not a hurricane that's coming. They're boarding up to express freedom. My goodness, how ironic is that? Uh, let's bring in James Cito, Downtown Seattle Association, and is with us now. James, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Scott. And I, I've got to hand it to your uh, producer for that return music coming out of break. That was an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's e- it's easy to point fingers when you're on the other side of the fence, isn't it? We're not, you know, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. We love you guys down there. So, what what is it like downtown Seattle Association? I'm guessing I'm guessing that's like the business association. What's it like down there today? Well, it's um, it, it, there's an air of uncertainty uh, in Seattle right now. Uh, and for your listeners to, to sort of give them a map of of what downtown is in Seattle, we're about five square miles, but we contain uh, about 100,000 residents. And pre-pandemic, it was home to uh, more than 360,000 jobs. So it, it's the center of commerce and really a growing residential area 
in in Seattle and in the region. And and what we're seeing is obviously preparedness um, for what may be uh, a, a week of unrest, depending on how the, how the election shakes out. Uh, do you think maybe we are all just getting too caught up in the hype and, and making too much out of this, or do you honestly, genuinely feel a fear? Uh, I think um, I think there is a um, an abundance of caution uh, that's being taken right now because I think what we saw unfold here and in many cities across the country in late May and early June was what happens if you don't sort of read the tea leaves and take the abundance of caution. And that was with a lot of property destruction, uh, vandalism, and looting um, that occurred after the the killing of George Floyd. And um, what we've had in Seattle has been a a pretty consistent um, level of protest activity, although it's been very small uh, the last couple of months. But since late May uh, up to now, uh, there has been at least some level of demonstration. And um, there has been such tension in the air about this national election that um, to take caution and to at least uh, make sure that you're taking certain security protocols just simply makes sense right now. You, you, you'd rather do it than not do it and be left standing and looking at a bunch of broken windows. Uh, the president has made reference to certain cities where there has been some unrest. Uh, Seattle, I believe, grouped into that. How, how does that make citizens feel? Well, it, it's um, it's rather remarkable um, to have um, your city be called an anarchist jurisdiction. I think that was the phrasing that was used, which that phrase seems kind of contradictory in and of itself. I'm not sure how you can be a jurisdiction and, and support anarchy at the same time. But, um, you know, the uh, it, it's, it's certainly unusual to be singled out like that. I think if you talk to people who are actually in the city of Seattle, they understand that... Um, uh, that what was referred to as CHOP or CHAZ, and for your listeners, it was a, a couple square blocks of the city that were uh, sort of taken over by, by protesters. Uh, they understand that that is not representative of the entire city of Seattle. But it is certainly strange, nonetheless, to have your city called an anarchist jurisdiction. I can assure you that there is actual uh, government here. Uh, it can be debated uh, on how well it's actually functioning in the city, but... We are not an anarchist jurisdiction. Um, as a citizen, as uh, someone who lives there, any call on this? I mean, we've certainly heard what the polls have said, but obviously remember what happened with the polls back in 2016. D- does anybody want to make a prediction for this? Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, uh, I think handicapping this this race um it certainly feels a lot like 2016, uh, but I think that, that people probably should have learned a lesson um, about reading too far into polling uh, in 2016. Um, and keep in mind, Seattle and King County um, here in Washington State um, is, is very blue uh, and leans very left. Um, so if you ask people in the city of Seattle right now what they think will happen, I, I think you get a, a pretty overwhelming response that they believe Joe Biden would win. Um, but if you went east of the mountains here, you may get a different response. Will America be as divided tomorrow or next week, or eventually will the country unite? Many have said, despite, it doesn't matter what, which way the, the election goes, the divisiveness will continue. Do you think this will, especially if it does change, this will unite America? I I try to be hopeful, and I, I think that the the pandemic um, and what's happened to our political landscape, I think they've both um, uh, exacerbated fissures that were already present in our society. Uh, my hope is that um, is that rallying from the pandemic and recovering from a recession um, are things that should be able to unite Americans. And my hope is that. Uh, regardless of what happens um, the next few days as the election is finalized, uh, that we do have a coming together as a nation because we sorely need it.
James Cito has been with us, Downtown Seattle Association. Uh, James, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. We up here wish, uh, wish the best for all of you. Good luck tonight. Thank you very much, Scott. Appreciate it. Uh, James Cito, Downtown Seattle Association, uh, talking about uh, Election Day in Seattle. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Getting some calls on this. Uh, let's start with Craig. Craig, your thoughts? If you're an American, which way would you vote? Hey, Scott. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I would vote for Trump, and uh, I have reasons why um, most of them are political, so I disagree with your assertion that this is more of a moral vote than a political one. And I think, in fact, that's kind of the reason why there's so much divisiveness, and it's on behalf of the left and the liberals for uh, just encouraging that identity politics where I I have political reasons why I'd vote for Trump, but uh, if I'm a Trump voter, I'm a racist. So those political reasons why I would vote for Trump or he's... I'm sorry, did you say you were a racist or people are calling you a racist because you're voting for Trump? Yeah, it's the identity politics. So yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, you're a Trump supporter, therefore you're a racist. Your, your reasons are invalid. You know, I agree with you. Uh, Craig, I'm not going to try to change your mind here. Uh, I disagree with you. I have a tendency to lean right and, and in the last couple of elections have voted that way. This would make pull me back to the center. This would make, uh, you know what, this team's got to sit down for a sec and regroup, and we're going to give the other team a chance uh, like they do every other year anyway. Um, to, and, and to me, and, and let me ask you that your opinion is, Craig, I, I, like, I think the majority of the stuff that Donald Trump finds is himself in is all self-inflicted. It. It's not people coming at him. It's it's what he says, and then those clips got pl- get played on the news. Do you not think he's sort of the cause of a lot of his own turmoil? Oh, I agree. He's certainly not yeah. a polished politician by any stretch of the imagination, but from a policy perspective... I don't even think he's a polished businessman, Craig. No, I, I would agree with that, for sure. Uh, from a policy perspective, though, he's brokered more peace deals in the Middle East than Obama and Biden ever did. He's done more for criminal reform, which helps the black communities, which Obama and Biden never did. Um, the policy at the border of separating families, that, that was an Obama and Biden policy. They, they're the ones who built the cages. It wasn't yeah, but that's deceiving. The cages weren't built. Yeah, but the cages weren't built for the reason they were, Craig. So now you're getting into the two part of the weeds. But I appreciate your opinion, Craig, and good luck. Take care. Uh, let's go and talk to Victor. Victor's online too. And Vic, uh, Victor, what are your thoughts? If you were American, uh, who would you vote for? Good afternoon, Scott. Um, like Craig, I do have Republican views, so I would want to vote Republican. But then the morality of it, I would go with Biden. Now, if I were an American, obviously I'd be making a real decision and I'd be conflicted. Uh, But as a Canadian, I can actually sit back and be an armchair quarterback and I can say I'd vote for Biden, but actually support Trump's politics. That being said, I do believe the Senate will stay Republican and uh, maybe the states might come out with a Democratic president and a Republican Senate. It is going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, Victor, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, the difference between Biden and Trump is Biden hides his lies. Trump's lies are, are uh, out in the open. Hands down, Trump. There you go. That's from uh, Kevin again. Uh, something can be said about that, but um, I, I don't think that gives him a pass to um, to be as divisive as what he is. And again, for me, this is go- this, if I was American, it'd be less about the politics and more about uh, more about the person. Because, again, politics, they go back and forth. Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal. That's the way Americans and Canadians are. But uh, I think morally, there's there's an issue here. And I think a lot of Americans are just tired of hearing from their president every single day all right let's move on economically how does this all affect canada how does it impact canada we certainly know uh with the energy industry uh they would favor trump politics as opposed to biden what about everything else let's bring in ian lee sprott school of business carleton university he is with us now ian thank you for the time hope you're well yes thanks uh thanks very much scott Ian, I know, you know, you're a couple of years older than I am. Have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, you know, just the whole notion of people boarding up stores so they can express their freedom to yeah. vote. It just seems so ironic. You're right. Uh, there is only, only in my lifetime that I can remember, and I remember it vividly, uh, the only other parallel was 1968. I was 15 years old, and uh, there were uh, racial riots across the United States 
throughout the, the long, hot summer of 68. Um, and er, almost every American city, you know, Detroit was on fire, Newark, New Jersey was on fire, Watson, Los Angeles. And young people my age at that time were out uh, every day, seven days a week, nonstop, nonstop, protesting the Vietnam War. And... Um, uh, the police at Chicago at the Democratic Convention, you know, beat the uh, young student protesters up on national television, beat them, beat the daylights out of them with uh, billy clubs, and uh, and people were boarding up their stores at the time of the election because it was such a toxic, toxic period, and and that's the only other time in in my lifetime that I can remember. Uh, this is different, obviously, because this isn't that there, there's no Vietnam War. There's a different set of issues, but the toxicity is every bit as real today. Uh, I think, as it was in 68. And for those who say it's far worse today, <laughs> 68 was just terrible. It was a terrible, terrible, the, the toxicity. And the, I mean, there were protests every city, every day. And I don't mean a couple hundred or 10 or 20. Yeah, yeah. Thousands, thousands, thousands were out there. It was just incredible. But this is, this is truly, um, uh, uh, I know it's often been said about other elections, but this is, a, I, I think they're, they're at a watershed. And I think there's, it's going to be much different after this election. I think it's going to quieten down and the toxicity is going to be uh, go away. The, the boil will be lanced. I think. Here's hoping, Ian. Here's hoping that boil is lanced. I, I, uh, I one, president, one president better for Canada than the other? Um, I, I wish I could tell you it was nice and, you know, sort of black and white like that, but it isn't. Uh, and I mean empirically, factually. I know most Canadians, you know, uh, feel much more comfortable with uh, Biden than Trump. Uh, many Canadians absolutely loathe Trump, fair enough. But when you look at it empirically, let me just very quickly highlight what I'm getting at. Biden has promised a $2 trillion green recovery plan. And um, it sounds great. We're all for that, right? Except that when you look at the details, it's going to be the biggest Buy American plan in American history. Because it's designed not to help Canada recover. <laughs> it's designed to help America recover. Mm -hmm. Now, if we can carve out of that some exemptions, okay. But, you know, so that's a good news, bad news story. Um, if the if there's a light blue wave where they just barely win the Senate, the Democrats, and they control the House, which is expected, then I think that will be better for Canada than if there's a big blue wave where the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who are much more radical, remember, that's the Bernie Sanders wing. Yeah. This was Warren wing. Well, many They're compare much, many compare the obviously the, the Republicans and the Conservatives, the Liberals to the Democrats, but this set of liberal uh, Democrats might be more representative of the NDP here in Canada. Somewhere between the NDP and the Liberals, is that accurate? There's there's almost two. In fact, there was a wonderful op-ed, a beautiful piece in the New York Times about six months ago, and they talked about the three parties inside the Democratic Party. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think it's more fair. I mean, it was a, an opinion. I would say what you just said. There's really two parties inside the Democratic Party. There's a a mainstream centrist liberal party, and then you've got people there who are very much more like the NDP and Green in Canada. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, they want to, you know, ban oil and gas tomorrow morning, <laughs> you know, and they want to close down pipelines. And and so my point being, it depends on how many seats they win. I mean, if they win a lot of seats uh, in both the Senate and the House, it's going to embolden, I believe, the, the progressive wing, and they'll be put, and that will include protectionism against countries like Canada. At the same time, Biden is friendly to Canada. He's going to certainly lower the rhetoric. It's not all that toxicity and, 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 and antagonism will disappear. But I don't want anyone to think that, you know, that happy days are here again, because in that Democratic caucus, in the Congress, in the House specifically, there are some very hardcore protectionists in the Democratic Party. So what I'm trying to say is, it's, we know what Trump would be for another four years because we've had four years of experience. So what we had for the last four years, we'll see more of it. With Biden, I think it'll be much more mixed, meaning there's going to be some parts of a Biden government administration that will be attractive to Canada and of interest to Canada and will be beneficial. And there'll be some parts of his agenda that will not be beneficial to Canada. He's promised to kill the Keystone Pipeline. Yep. And, uh, but at the same time, He's promising to reduce the impact or the, the influence of oil and gas, to reduce the output of oil and gas. That would create, you would think, more markets for Canadian oil uh, exports. So it's going to be, it really is very much, it won't be driven by the animosity 
that Trump has towards Trudeau. But nonetheless, there will be uh, frictions and antagonisms between the two countries, even with uh, a Biden Democratic uh, government. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. We'll chat again real soon. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. New set of guidelines coming up from the province to help us better understand what was stage one, two, and three has now been stretched out into five different categories, which allow people to or, or officials to more surgically uh, implement measures where they are needed and lift them in other areas uh, where they are not. And uh, this is, I guess, just as this whole thing evolves and, and this fluid situation evolves and requires um, more and more uh, criteria to base uh, these decisions on. Uh, the numbers today, 1,050 new cases in Ontario. And what's astounding is now how those are being distributed. Uh, Toronto, 408. Peel, 212. And then Halton jumps up into third place with 86 cases, which I find astounding considering their politicians uh, just last week or a week or so ago were saying that uh, they didn't want to be gl- grouped into uh, the same area areas as Toronto, uh, that uh, the government wasn't adhering to the science or the evidence. Uh, and you have to wonder if people in those areas now thought, well, this isn't as bad, and they loosened up their uh, their values and what they do and their protocol, and now uh, Halton finds itself in third place uh, of the regions with the most cases today. And uh, as of Friday, uh, those hot spots of Peel and, uh, and Ottawa and such will move into the same category, back to where uh, Halton and Hamilton now find themselves. Hamilton doing a great job. 34 cases uh, in Ottawa. You got to take your hats off to them. Um, your hat off to them. Ottawa is the same, tied with Hamilton with 34 cases. They were once uh, one of the hot spots and now obviously have done a great job in uh, curtailing that or down to uh, 34. And Halton almost tripled that amount. So uh, it's amazing how which was once a hot spot is not. And uh, those that once wanted looser restrictions are now becoming that hot spot. So again, uh, Ontario website better explains this than I probably can uh, in order to uh, apparently there's a new dashboard up there that uh, that breaks this down and you can also go to our website where uh, our reporters have uh, have very much broken this down into what it all means uh, very simply someone said can I get a Big Mac in Hamilton <laughs> yes you can feel free all right let's move on and uh, yeah, where, where are we going to go from here man it, it's hard to figure out uh, are you keeping score? You know, we don't need an election and a pandemic in the same day, same year. It's just there's just so much stuff going on. All right, let's talk about working from home. We've done that a lot. Yours truly is doing it. Some of those uh, that are fortunate to do it, uh, we are blessed in the sense that we still have a job, uh, whereas, you know, some people are just uh, down and out during this uh, pandemic. But with more and more people working from home, uh, at first it seems like it's great, but it it, it can create a lot of burnout. And uh, we're going to bring in Susan Shin, registered social worker, Susan Shin Counseling Services, and is with us now. Susan, thanks for the time. Hoping you're well. Yes, I'm well. Thank you so much. You know, I was reading something and, and I found this fascinating. And they were saying if you're working from home, don't get up and go directly to your computer. Uh, you know, with, with your PJs on and what have you, you got to have some sort of structure and some sort of uh, schedule in your life uh, at home other than work. Uh, can this be a detriment, Susan? In terms of having a routine, um, I don't think so. I think it's really important that um, we implement uh, a structure and routine, uh, especially now. Uh, more people are working from home, and so it's really important that we sort of um, give our brains actually a structure to work from. Uh, so, and, and I always tell my clients, um, it doesn't have to be uh, very detailed. It can be something as simple as, Um, you know, just making sure that you are giving yourself um, a ritual every day, the same thing every day, or maybe choosing to sit at your computer at a certain time as opposed to, uh, right, you know, uh, sort of as opposed to uh, the usual hours, that kind of thing, or or even giving yourself a break at 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 the same time every single day is really important. What traps can we fall into while working from home? 
I think the main trap and is that uh, we, we tend to overwork. Uh, some of us feel that there's more pressure to work as we're working from home, um, that we have to always be on. We have to always um, respond to the email right away or respond to the uh, or, or come in on time on a deadline. All of these things, um, you know, make sure that we're present for the Zoom calls. And so I think it's really important to um to place uh, to be sort of mindful of just how how much you're working, and to build in those breaks so that you are not um, overworking. It was it was funny. I remember reading somewhere where somebody actually said, like at five o'clock, they'd put their out of office thing on because be, because now we're working from home. People think they can just get a hold of you whenever you want, but you do have to draw that line, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, drawing boundaries is really important, and sometimes the easiest boundary that we can draw is just setting a time where we are uh, communicating to other colleagues to say that, you know, I'm I'm not going to check my email past 5 o'clock. Um, I have kids that I have to deal with or I've got other things on the go. Um, you know, I will be back at work looking at my email, uh, you know, at whatever time the next day. What about missing the actual face-to-face, the camaraderie of those that we work with, those that we would pass in the hall, that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's one of the things that people really miss most about uh, going into a workplace is that uh, collegiality, that camaraderie. Um, what I say that it's important to find that in other aspects of your life um, because we are on Zoom and some of our clients, uh, some of my clients say that they're just Zoomed out. They're, you know, they're, they have so much Zoom fatigue. And so what I usually uh, counsel is I say, well, let's try to find uh, areas of connection in other other parts of your life. So that generally during this time means friends and family. And so that could be uh, something as simple as, you know, having a, a telephone conversation with a friend. Um, you know, old-timey technology like the telephone can actually yeah. create a sense of intimacy that maybe we're missing from the Zoom calls. Um, simple sort of acts of connection and affection with your loved ones. Hugging is a great thing. I think that's maybe gone out of style these days, but uh, hugging has been shown to uh, reduce your levels of stress. You know, you bring up a very valid point, Susan, because some of us wonder whether the hug or the handshake will ever come back. But that doesn't mean you can't do that within your bubble and the people that you're working with. So just hug your family more, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hug your family, the people that are in your bubble. Um, you know, be safe about it, of, of course. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's really important to, to have that kind of connection. When we are chained to the home office, how important is it that we get out of uh, the house, out of the four walls, even if it's just to stand in the backyard or go for a walk? Extremely important. Um, you know, there's a reason why, uh, you know, when you go to the doctor and uh, they tell you, well, you know, your, your uh, you know, sort of heart uh, hormones are a bit high, you, you really need to reduce your stress. Um, and physical activity time after time in all of the evidence uh, and scientific papers shows that it's the most effective way to reduce stress. And and I, I try to counsel my clients and say, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to do a 90-minute yoga class <laughs> or, uh, mm. you know, do CrossFit. Um, I, you know, I sometimes micro-exercise, I call it micro-exercise, is a really great, <laughs> great way to reduce stress. Um, you know, jumping jacks, in place, uh, walk around the block. If you have a dog or a pet that, you, that needs exercise, that's a great way uh, to do it. It's just a way to reduce that stress response in the body, um, but also to give your your you know a ch- your mind a chance to clear itself and uh, and replenish. You know, it's it, funny you should bring up the dog because we just happened to get a dog uh, like the year before COVID struck, and my goodness, now it's amazing how that can help, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not a coincidence that more more and more people are, are going out and getting pets. I mean, they offer a lot of affection, uh, a sense of connection, um, structure, and exercise, an opportunity to exercise. So they're really great. Susan Shin has been with us, registered social worker. Susan Shin Counseling Services, talking about balancing work and home when you're working from home. Susan, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. All right, as if there isn't enough stuff going on this week, uh, on Thursday, I believe it is, uh, the Ontario government will unveil its budget. Uh, Jasmine Moulton, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, says there should be five things that are in that budget. To talk more about all of that, Jasmine Moulton is with us now. Uh, I'm sorry, is it Jasmine or Jasmine? 
Uh, Jasmine. Jasmine, I'm sorry. I think I've called you Jasmine in the past. Please accept <laughs> no my apology. Uh, Jasmine, you've written out uh, five things here that uh, that the government should include in the budget. Real quickly, lower taxes and corporate wo- warefail, uh, warfare, <laughs> welfare, uh, reduce the size and cost of government, lower hydro rates, and refu- uh, refuse re- uh, funding to wasteful municipalities. Let's start with the first, lower taxes. Uh, this sounds easy. Is it going to be easy during a pandemic, though? Well, we saw from the Financial Accountability uh, Office of Ontario, they suggested a path back to balance that would include some tax hikes. Uh, And that's right now just the last thing that anybody needs. Families, businesses are struggling. So uh, we're specifically calling on the government to lower taxes. We don't want to see this government just uh, keep taxes where they are or uh, raise them like the federal government did. Justin Trudeau raised the carbon tax on April 1st. Uh, we're saying, look, it's time to lower taxes. Um, people are struggling. A lot of millions of Ontarians lost their jobs. And taxes are the biggest household expense on average for Canadian families. So the best way that we can help them out is by lowering the burden that government places uh, on them directly. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate here. How do we pay for COVID-19 if we don't raise taxes? That's a great question. So the government's been quick to uh, shut down what it has deemed non-essential businesses. uh, But we would say the government needs to shut down non-essential government spending. There's Mm. a lot of areas where the government uh, is spending that are not related to the pandemic at all. Uh, You know, no reasonable person would say, that they need to reduce spending in every area. Obviously, healthcare is a reasonable area of ex- increased expenditure during a global pandemic. Um, but why, for example, did the Ford government, as we'll get to uh, next, hand out $295 million to the Ford Motor Company? Um, this has nothing to do with COVID-19. Uh, it has nothing to do with job creation, as we'll discuss. Uh, 400 uh, employees are going to lose their job once the plant is retooled to build electric vehicles. Um, so that kind of spending just has no place when Ontario is broke. Uh, devil's advocate again, but that's the future, Jasmine. Electric vehicles are the future. Well, then I would think that Ford would want to invest in uh, them itself. But as it pointed out in its own uh, annual report, uh, the future of electric vehicles is quite risky. Um, We don't know that it will take off in Canada. And what we've seen is that it hasn't. It's required massive government, uh, they'll say investment. But what that means is they're taking a lot of money from taxpayers to fund subsidies to try and get this uh, market off the ground. And it just hasn't taken shape yet. So if Ford wants to take a risk on electric vehicles, that's great. But they should do so on their own dime. Uh, reducing the size of government. I- I'm all for this. Uh, I-, I think the license plate fiasco is a perfect example of how the left hand just does not know what the right hand is doing. And certainly within a pandemic, we have seen that government is big and cumbersome and not very limbo- uh, nimble. Do you think that will change post-COVID-19? Well, we saw actually the Ford government make a little bit of movement. Um, when they came to office, they offered some Uh, early retirement packages, that sort of thing to try and trim down the size of government. But make no mistake, the size of government in Ontario is now up to 1.3 million employees working for the government. And uh, it was the private sector, people working outside of government that have borne the brunt of the COVID-19 related job losses. 90% or nine out of every 10 jobs that was lost due to COVID-19 happened outside the world of government. Um, So the size of government cannot remain the same. We have fewer taxpayers bearing the extreme cost burden of a big bureaucracy. And uh, this year alone, for example, uh, the Ford government is allowing every single bureaucrat to take a raise up to 1% that could cost taxpayers $720 million. When millions of taxpayers lost their jobs, um, that's ludicrous, and he needs to uh, stop that and trim the size of government immediately. Uh, lower hydro rates, uh, boy, this is a, a favor to mine. Uh, that being said, we've certainly heard uh, prior to the election, we're going to get them down, we're going to get them down. Then we find out these contracts are so uh, rock solid that it's going to cost us more to get out of it than to stay in it. So h- how can we lower hydro rates? So that's a great question. We did see um, there were a couple examples where, uh, the Ford government did try to uh, renegotiate um, renegotiate these contracts, and we would continue uh, to ask them to do that. Obviously, halting um, getting into any new ones. Uh, it's just uh, absurd that 
any government, and uh, admittedly, it was the last government in Ontario, the Liberal government that signed us on to these, uh, you know, uh, contracts that locked us in above market rates for hydro. Um, it's a terrible deal for taxpayers. And while litigation might be uh, expensive, we would encourage the government to try to negotiate, renegotiate the contracts where possible and where litigation costs less than um, carrying these things out to their full duration. Is there really any wiggle room here, though? Well, let's hope so, because hmm. uh, as I point out in my in my release, uh, Ontario families now pay 22% more for hydro on average than anywhere else in the country. As soon as you step over the border into Manitoba, you're already getting a break. Uh, Ontario, large industrial consumers in Ontario pay up to 65% more. So as we just saw, you know, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford give Ford a massive taxpayer handout. What about all the other businesses operating in this province uh, struggling to pay their hydro bill every month? Um, the best thing that uh, Ford could do for businesses and families um, as we try to recover from COVID-19 would be to lower hydro rates and lower taxes. All right. Refuse funding to wasteful municipalities. Uh, is there a lot of waste in the municipalities? Absolutely. So <laughs> you've uh, heard me talk about Toronto as maybe one of the worst examples. Um, but there are municipalities, I believe it was uh, potentially Hamilton that was looking at um, you know, bidding on hosting some uh, some games in the future mm-hmm. as well. When we have these municipalities that continue on as if it's business as usual, when COVID-19 has devastated their finances, uh, Doug Ford should absolutely refuse to give them any more funding until they uh, get their priorities straight. Like I said, in Toronto, we see the mayor there wanting to build a nearly $4 billion single park uh, when he's not taking care of any of the current parks he has, there's hundreds of encampments across the city. I think that taxpayers are right to say, why should we be giving these, you know, rewarding bad behavior on behalf of the municipalities by giving them more provincial tax money? And let's remember, there's only one taxpayer for three levels of government. So I think the province should absolutely, uh, you know, cut off municipalities when they're um, wasting taxpayer money. And then once they uh, get their priorities straight, Um, then maybe they can turn the taps back on. Jasmine Moulton has been with us, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Budget coming out for Ontario this week, this Thursday, and some things the Canadian Taxpayers Federation would like to see. Jasmine, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.